0: G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday the 16th of January 2024. That just still feels weird weird to say that. And our topics this week, uh, Woolies and Big W Australia Day decision has prompted opposition leader Peter Dutton to call for a boycott. And Australia, we've been involved in a little bit of US and UK action in Yemen. We'll give you the lowdown on what's going on. Of course, then we have our Two Ticks Town Talk in the middle and we'll jump into this week in Australian history and we'll finish off, as always, with a 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up with the last week. deep. what's been going on?
1: Not a happy camper, DK. Flamin' Rosella's nicked me nashies. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. I was fl- we, get these, we get these Eastern Rosellas, which are... Uh, beautiful birds. I uh, One of the things uh, moving down here, I've got to sort of uh, know a bit more about birds and gone from not having much interest in them to uh, being able to sort of identify a few of them and look at them. And, yeah, they've got these beautiful red heads and, uh, mm. you know, nice uh, colours all over them. But I was there and I had seen the, the Nushies were coming um were just starting to, to fruit and they were like hard little green things and I was when I was getting some of the veggies out of the garden I looked over and I thought oh better start uh getting ready to to net them because I'll be starting to um yeah. yeah on their path to actually ripening up into some beautiful bits of fruit and I was in the office and I thought oh there's one of those there's a, an eastern rosella isn't that nice having a bit of a a walk around the the trees and a bit later in the day. I look, I thought, oh, it's, 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 there's there's another one. Still seems to be be happy. And I thought, why is it so keen on being? In-? And I just thought, oh God. Went out, had a look, and there's like half eaten ones on the the ground. Uh all the other ones had just been picked off. And I thought, you little bastards! You got bloody I Nick got, oh. got every single one of them. So look, they must have been oh. at it for a few days, but. My fault. I didn't think that they would get into something like into fruit that was so green. But uh, apparently, birds can view the fruit a little bit differently. I've been told. So, look, lesson learned. But uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't pleased about that. So today, even though it was a bit of a stinker, I got out there and I've uh, I've netted the the green plums and the the figs and. Um, and the grapes, so hopefully, I should be uh, should be on top of it there. So,
0: yeah, I oh. I can feel your pain because I have a very similar situation that's been going on. We have a crop of bananas. We have a couple of banana trees on my property, and we've got a we've got a big bunch that are that are almost ripe, and we've had a bunch of uh, they called blue-faced honey eaters. They're a beautiful bird. Uh, And we've had a pair that come into our yard for for years and years and years. Um, Normally, I don't really mind them having a few because they only sort of take a couple of bananas. Uh, Normally the ones that ripen the, you know, sort of first. So they're probably going to go bad anyway. So I'm not too too worried about it. Um, But the... Huge flock of uh cockatoos. Like oh, proper oh, white right uh yellow crested cockatoos have uh I think their blue faced honey eaters have shown them where the oh, where the bananas no. were because they just causing a racket. I went out there and there was a bunch of bananas on the ground. I assume they were eating them. I don't really know. They were sort of torn up and, and all over the place, but uh, it was more destruction, if I'm honest, uh, yeah. than consumption. Uh, oh. And I, I sort of chased the flock off, Off made a hell of a racket very early in the morning. Uh, and I'm afraid to say I think I've lost the vast majority of my banana crop. So it's a little bit upsetting. Oh,
1: you're kidding.
0: Yeah. Look, it's my fault. I, I could net them up. I could do that. Um, lots of people are doing that at the moment with mangoes because uh, we're in mango country up here as well. Uh, and the between the birds and the bats, uh, we get a lot of uh, fruit bats here as well, and they normally get real stuck into the mangoes. They don't really the, – the bats, I've never had a problem with the bats with the bananas yeah. um, or any of the other – like the citrus and stuff that we have, uh, but the but the mangoes, they definitely go for. And so they quite often um, – you'll drive around and you'll see people with the, the nets in the yard and – I've never thought to do it on the bananas, but maybe moving forward I'm going to have to because these cockies, they're pretty clever. They'll remember where, yeah, and uh, like I said, I don't think they really ate much. They just kind of knocked them all to the ground because they're bastards like that. So um, they're they're troublemakers, bloody cockies.
1: They are. They love to, sometimes you just see them there and they'll get up to a tree and just like snap a branch off just sort of look at you. What, you. what are you going to do about it? So it doesn't surprise me that I thought, "Oh, this is fun chopping off bananas."
0: Yep. <laughs> there, there. Um, yeah, I've seen them. This this group of cockatoos uh, is like a local bunch that live not not too far, probably about two hundred meters from my house. There's a really big gum tree that they seem to uh, uh, eat. Uh, sorry, sort of hang out and they eat food there, yep. and you know, they've been there for years. Basically, since the whole time we've lived in this house for the for the nine years that we've been here, they've been there. Um, and so they're they're sort of around, but they bloody. A couple of weeks ago, I noticed as well they were pulling the uh, the light post <laughs> outside my house. They'd pulled all the rubber out because it was glass all over the road, and I was looking at it going, "What's what's happened here? Has there been an accident or something?" And I looked up, and this is quite early in the morning sort of 5.30 I was taking the dog for a walk I look up and they're, they're there standing on top of the uh, light post and they've got the rubber in their, in their mouths and I'm like you play cheeky buggers you've pulled the, pulled the whole light fitting apart It's glass everywhere and I was just like oh so I got home called the council and said hey listen you know you'll need to come and fix this up. And they said, oh, they've been doing it all over town. Bloody rascals wow, wow. been getting into everything. And I was like, oh, they're just. So for our international listeners that see a cockatoo and, you know, in the movies or at the zoo or something and go, oh, what a cool parrot. They're a bloody pest they are. They're really, really noisy and they're so destructive.
1: <laughs> well, they are a beautiful bird, but that doesn't change what you just said.
0: Exactly, they are a beautiful bird, and and it is you know quite nice to have them around and everything. But they're really not noisy in the mornings uh and <laughs> destructive. They'll they'll bloody wreck wreck all sorts of stuff. So now speaking of just generally wrecking things, <laughs> Woolworths and Big W. Their Australia Day decision has prompted Peter Dutton to call for a boycott. The the two major retailers have decided not to stock Australia Day merchandise this year to a quote-unquote gradual decline in community demand. The decision has prompted the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, to call on Australians to boycott Woolworths, the Woolworths Group, said that while it stocked Australian flags year round, it wouldn't be stocking anything special for the occasion this year. And a spokesman said for the for the Woolworths group a spokesman said there has been a gradual decline in demand for the Australian-made merchandise from our stores over the recent years, and at the same time, there's been a broader discussion around the 26th of January and, and what it means to different parts of the community. Mr Dutton said that he wanted CEO uh, the... Sorry. Mr. Dutton said he wanted Woolworths to reverse its decision and called for the Prime Minister to call it out and for CEOs to stop making decisions with a woke agenda. He told uh, 2GB Radio, I think people should boycott Woolworths. I would advise very strongly to take your business elsewhere until we get common sense out of a company like Woolworths. I don't think they should be supported by the public. Woolworths is not the first retailer to start moving away from the Australia Day. Last January, Kmart announced it would not sell merchandise specific to the 26th of January. And Aldi has also not been doing any special promotions for Australia Day. Uh, In previous years, it has sold Australia Day merchandise. However, Coles confirmed it would be stocking a small range of Australian themed summer entertaining merchandise throughout the month of January. In response to Mr. Dutton's comments, the federal government said that the opposition leader was being divisive. (laughs) Agricultural Minister Murray Watt said Peter Dutton's priority is starting another culture war about the kinds of thongs and flags the supermarkets sell. (laughs) I think it shows that he is really out of touch with what Australians really care about when it comes to supermarkets, and that's the prices that they're paying at the checkout. So what is the big deal, especially for our international listeners? Why do we not, why do we care about this? So for years, there's been growing debate around Australia Day and the appropriateness of celebrating on the 26th of January, because that is the day the British flag was first planted on soil in Australia, in Sydney in 1788. And many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people view the date as a quote-unquote invasion day or survival day and see it as a time of mourning inappropriate for national celebrations. Adit, how do you feel about this? Well, first of all, I I
1: tend to call bullshit on the decision that the it was removing items due to falling sales um i think even if sales were falling, they had to be aware of what the response would be unless they were a bit thick and if they've got even even if they've got the flags that they normally sell move them to a different position and whack happy Australia day on them I think they could have uh they could have worked with that I do get the um I suppose I do get the the the, the hesitation and the uh, concern from you know the likes of the CEOs and people making those decisions that with a, a topic that seems to be coming more controversial every um, every year. Uh, we, we certainly notice that in you know, conversations in there in the R slash Australian subreddit with. Um, yeah, the level of vitriol being levelled at people who are against Australia Day, and the level of vitriol being levelled uh, by people who are for Australia Day, uh, it does go both ways, and it is probably a reasonable uh, comment from oh God. Who was it who said to, who said to them, uh, said to Dutton about a a, a culture war. Or that he was uh, looking to start that, I can't remember
0: which. Ah, uh, that but... was agricultural minister Murray Watt.
1: Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a fair enough criticism. Uh, from Dutton's point of view, while I think he hammed it up and hyped it up, I think it was a reasonable political move, and I think it's a reasonable political move because following uh the defeat defeat of the voice referendum. He obviously recognises that there's a lot of people out there who are going to be very much in favor of Australia Day and therefore anything that uh threatens it is going to be similar to the brouhaha you see around Christmas time by people who say saying they're wanting to cancel Christmas. There's always a grain of truth in those things. I think there is a uh, well, I know people hate the phrase, but I think there is a bit of a woke agenda. I think that has does cause some problems and has been a little bit of a, what's the term that some people use, like a, a bit of a, a mind virus for some of the uh, the corporations. However, I think the there is also the side that it is a date which is uh, a particularly sensitive date to... A lot of Australians in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and also people who are you know, members of their, you know, related by, by family and just, just by friends, or just see their point of view. I don't see this getting any less divisive. Probably no surprise to hear that my opinion is um, government shouldn't be telling supermarkets what they can or can't sell yeah I'm, so I, I don't actually back uh, <laughs> Dutton <laughs> telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing boycotts are fine i i think they can get a little bit out of of hand sometimes however sometimes all you've got to vote with is your your dollar and in principle i don't have an issue with with boycotts i think this is, i think this matter will come to a head don't know if it'll come un, come to a head under Albanese, I think he's a little bit once bitten twice shy and will not be drawn into something as big as deciding how the federal government recognizes Australia Day. I think it would be a little bit of political suicide to uh, get too close to that um, that issue in terms of woolies look, I understand their decision. I think it was had elements of being sensitive to one side of the argument but I also think it was probably a mistake and I feel like we're going to see that they have underestimated uh, supporters of the, the other side of the argument. We'll wait to, to see but that tends to be how I view it. What's, what's your sort of opinion of it?
0: I think Dutton's done this I think he's playing smart politics. Um, I think, you know, I think it was 12 months ago, he was carrying on about not cancel culture is is bad and and, and all these sorts of things. And now he's calling for a boycott and that irony certainly isn't lost on me. Um, But at the same time, I think he's playing smart politics. He's seen an opportunity to get, you know, some points on the, on the scorecard. And so he's done it. I think, he's only really done it because because it's Woolworths because it is one of the the well sorry the largest supermarket chain in the country um so he could really take a shot at them uh because the reality is most people shop at a supermarket because of its location and its convenience uh and You know, the vast majority of Woolworths shoppers aren't going to stop going to Woolworths and start driving to Coles just because of some Australian merchandise. Um, You know, uh, is a boycott going to really... Are are people that worked up about this to boycott it? I'm sure there are some people that will, yes. Um, But, you know, largely it's just political... uh, you know, like the agricultural minister said, it's basically a, a culture war type dialogue uh, about this. And unfortunately, I feel like that's where the discussion around Australia Day has kind of got to. Um, nothing, nothing has really changed with Australia Day, uh, you know, largely in terms of uh, how it generally is celebrated with most people. However... I feel like over the last 5 years it slowly has been chipped away by you know councils not no longer holding it. It, you know pre- years previously it was really common in Australia that councils would hold a ceremony for people that have become Australian citizens to come and do the actual formalized ceremony, getting the certificate, and everything like that, as a group on Australia Day, and it's kind of a mm. cool way to celebrate becoming a citizen with a bunch of new citizens and things like that. Um, and I have I've been to one uh, with some friends of mine that became a citizen, uh, and there was a bunch of people there, and it was you know we had a barbecue and things like that, and it was quite cool. Mm. Uh, and those sorts of things have largely been changed from Australia Day, and I think as a result, it's sort of, they're not as popular um, just because, you know, it's not a public holiday anymore and things like that. Um, so, I look at it and go, uh, I empathise with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and and not wanting uh, the National Day of Celebration to be on the 26th of January. I sort of get that. this The symbology mm-hmm. of that You know, is it in bad taste? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, The problem is we don't really have, you know, we want a date that has significant meaning. And I know there has been another few that have been thrown around, but the January 26th works so well because it's on the 26th of January. Uh, That's generally the first week of school. So that kind of helps with uh, um, planning around schools and holidays and things like that. It It just kind of works really, really well. And so I think there's a group of people that kind of the opposition to changing the date is just from a convenience point of view. Let's just leave it as it is and kind of, you know, push it under the rug because I don't want to know about it and things. I also think there's a huge pushback this year because of the way that the voice uh, was yeah, all handled. Yep. And of course this is another time where the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community becomes quite vocal about their thoughts and feelings about the, the, you know, to quote them, the invasion and occupation of Australia by the British and the colonies thereafter. So we've just had the voice and a lot of people are like, we've put it to bed, let's move on. And now, of course, Australia comes around. So it's all brought back up again. I think it's smart politics from Peter Dutton to make this call to boycott, just like I said, for political rungs on the board. Yeah. Does he really think he's going to tank the walrus group no of course not uh but you know he he can use this as as um political point scoring uh do i think look if i was a politician in his position would i do the same thing probably not but that's because i have uh you know self-respect and integrity (laughs) 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 i was wondering i was wondering where that was going to go (laughs) but uh it is peter dutton uh (laughs) <laughs> of course, he's gonna do. Of course, he was gonna do something like this. Uh, for our foreigners that don't know, Peter Dutton <laughs> likes to think of himself as a little bit of a, a little bit of a rascal, a bit of a counterculture. Uh, you know, he he likes to talk about his opposition to the quote unquote woke agenda and things like that. I don't want to say he's like Trump because he's not. Uh, Trump's way more charismatic than than Peter Dutton is. Peter oh, Dutton, one long shot. Oh, Peter, Peter Dutton doesn't have a lot of charisma to him, so I feel feel like he really leans on this sort of stuff um, for these political point scoring things because he's kind of got nothing else. Uh, and oh, part of me, I actually think he sort of believes this stuff as well. He is a bit like that, where where he's been consistent over enough years that I think he sort of leaned in it maybe a little bit too hard, and he's starting to believe believe the shit that he says. But
1: maybe, yeah. I, I and, and look, I think it's he 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 recognizes how well it can sell. I mean, there was mm. uh, there's, there's that observation that gets made sometimes that you know, culturally Australia's you know five to ten years behind the the United States, and I feel like in this particular. Instant. well in a number of instances i think that's a reasonable rule of thumb but i think in this instance it's working out for that and uh i can see him wanting to to capitalize on that that cycle and that that feeling
0: yep. yeah yeah i think so,
1: yeah So social media certainly has has shrunk that um that that lagging gap but a lot of the the words, a lot of the complaints, and uh, cultural stances that are taken certainly reflect what's happened in uh, in the the US, which yeah we tend to echo in uh, a lot of things culturally. You know, mm. it, it's it, you know one of one of the US United States' biggest exports is their their culture, and yeah. you know there's there's a lot to be understood for that for why it's good but, you know you get the good you get the bad as well so yeah look <coughs> i'm not going to <laughs> i'm not going to fanboy Dutton at all because i think whilst uh whilst the the prime prime minister albo does um Listen to listen to listen to our podcast, and we wouldn't necessarily call him a, a friend of the podcast, but you know he's a he's an acquaintance of the podcast. I think it's probably fair enough to say that Dutton's probably an an arch villain of the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily for political things, but just because of who he is.
0: <laughs> I, I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to go with that. And I look, I do think. Uh, that Albanese probably is going to keep right away from oh, yeah. from this. He's not. He's probably not going to comment too much. Um, I'd actually love to see an interview where where a journalist you know brings it up in his face, um, so he can't sort of sort of back away. Um, though he'll probably just give some you know typical politician type answer. Because you're right, he. he he could have an opportunity to, to change the day and you would think that might be in his wheelhouse considering uh, his support for The Voice. However, I think you're right. I think it doesn't make political sense for him to do that and just keep right away from it. Um, yeah. But we'll see. Look, you know, uh, it's not until the election's not until mid-next year, most likely, so there's still a long time... Something could happen between then and now. We don't know, but yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah. let's move on to our Two Text Town Talk. Okay, With
1: this week's Two Text Town Talk, we go back to Western Australia to the small town of uh, Balladonia. Now. It's uh, essentially a small roadhouse community uh, located on the air highway in Western Australia. So it's the first stop east of Norseman as you journey east across the, the Nullarbor Plain. So it's nine hundred and thirty-eight k east of Perth via via Kalgoorlie, uh sorry, I should say, and seventeen hundred k's from Adelaide. And I'm sorry. I didn't write down what that is in miles, but uh, we normally give it to you. So, in this case, you're just going to have to work that one out for yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, prior to European settlement, the area is occupied by members of the Ngachime Aboriginal Language Group. The name is apparently derived from an Ab- Aboriginal word, juinya uh, Meaning big red rock by itself. Now I say apparently because I couldn't find a definite answer on this one, and there just seemed to be a there was a couple of little uh, things I saw. And I thought, oh, I'm not not sure about that. So let's put a maybe on that.
0: Uh, was, that was that translation a bit of a, a giveaway?
1: Well, I well, <laughs> because it doesn't sound anything like Baladonia.
0: Oh no, no, because it translates to big red rock. <laughs>
1: by itself yeah <laughs> well look maybe uh, look i don't i don't know enough about the uh, uh aboriginal language group to know the significance of a, a big red rock by itself but it just you know how sometimes when we're looking up this stuff for the two ticks town talk you can uh, you, you'll find the the local language group or the you know whatever sort of mob is in the the area and things things make sense. It, it checks out with what you, what you expect to be there and, and what you're cross-referencing. Whereas this just seemed to be... Eh, I'm I'm putting it a, a little bit doubtful on that one. So
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you're right. That translation doesn't sort of lend a, lend a lot. Now, I haven't been to Balladonia. I don't know if there's a big red rock by itself near there. Um, certainly not close to Uluru at all, but... Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, so it might it might <laughs> well be that. Uh, Europeans went in the, the area, settled the area in 1878, and the homestead was built about 28, the original Balladonia homestead was built about 28 k's from where the present town site is. Factoids about the town. Uh, the roadhouse was first built in 1962 to cater for travellers travelling across the country, uh, across the Nullarbor, for the Empire and Commonwealth Games that were held in Perth that year. Uh, That was for international listeners. um, The Commonwealth, uh, basically where all the colonies of, of Britain get together and have some... Games. We still have the Commonwealth Games. We do. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, no longer called the Empire Games, but the Commonwealth Games. (laughs) So in 1962, Australia was actually the the winner then. They won the most gold. Uh, They came in first. That
0: happens a lot, to be fair. It does. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, especially in the the Commonwealth Games. So look, Australia got uh, they got the most gold, thirty eight, but one hundred and five medals all up. England second with seventy eight medals, and New Zealand third with thirty two. Uh, also in the area, uh, the uh, Balladonia Rolina freshwater pools uh, at East Gaf- Afghan Rocks, and they were named for a camelier who was shot nearby on uh, October. 1894. So they used to stop there, water the camels, and you know, when goods were being transported across by camels, as they often were, Baladonia was also a bit of a stop-off there. Uh, with the modern roads between Baladonia and Kaduna uh, is a 146k 91-mile stretch of highway, which is one of the longest straight stretches of road in the world. I think the longest is, uh, where they say it was? Well, somewhere Saudi Arabia. I should have noted that, but didn't. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's a long road. And I've been, oh, I've driven on that. Not that I particularly remember that straight bit. It all feels straight when you get on the bloody. <laughs> well, it, it was, was very <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, oh. Uh There's also the Nullarbor Lynx Golf Course. Now, it's the world's longest golf course uh, with the first hole in Ceduna in South Australia and the 18th hole is 1,365 kilometers away at Kalgoorlie.
0: Wow, yes. that's cool. <laughs> I never I knew that. That's uh, really cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, it's, it's real and can be uh, fun for committed golfers. And the Balladonia hole comes with warning of beware of, of snakes. There's, uh, I'm guessing this guy's uh, a, a golf person who does Robbie's guide to, to golf um, golf courses. So his comment on the uh, one at Balladonia is a devilish, devilishly difficult Par 3, 175 metres over trees and bushes to a small clearing containing a green. And that green is just an astroturf green, um, unsurprisingly. There is only a small area before the green which is safe as there is a dense scrub left, right and back. Hit straight and beware of snakes, particularly in the summer month. Now, along this big course, it's a uh, whole number... Four and the name of it is Skylab Par Three. So we get uh-huh. on, ah, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, no, uh, we get on to what caught my eye about uh Balladonia, and that was Skylab, the space station, breaking up in May 1973. So Skylab was actually the first U.S. Uh, space station ever created. Had an orbital workshop, a solar observatory, Earth observation, and more. And uh, it ended up not really lasting as long as they thought it was going to when it was originally planned. NASA uh, sent it sent it up in '73 and abandon it just a year later. But they thought at the time, okay, we can leave it in, in orbit until we sort of work out what we're going to do with it. But um, there was greater than expected solar activity in lead up to 1979. That heated the Earth's atmosphere. It caused Skylab to decay and deorbit, which is a technical term for panic and crash to earth, yeah, falling flaming- out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now publicly, the the U.S. Uh, space agency said there was only a very remote chance a Skylab crass- crashing into a heavily populated area, as they would. Uh, privately, there were concerns, and there was even one NASA uh, official who resigned. Over the objections of the way the US had handled the disintegration of its largest satellite, as the spacecraft began to enter some 48 hours before uh, before its ultimate collision, a command was sent to alter the way from alter the orbit away from North America. To avoid risking American lives, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a little bit damning. So Robert Gray from the U.S. Uh, State Department would later maintain that decision was made to ensure it landed in the South Atlantic or Indian Ocean. There's always a reason. Look, maybe that was genuine, but uh, government and secret squirrels tend to doubt everything they say. So. NASA initially uh, made assurance that the state space station had fallen harmlessly into the Indian Ocean at two thirty eight a.m. Australian Eastern Standard time. Uh, Eastern Standard time, isn't it? AEST. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but the ABC talkback line was doing was finding something different. Now ABC uh, for international listeners is our. Uh, Public Broadcasting System, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and typically, particularly 2.40 in the morning, uh, there's not much talk going on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, so their lines were ringing ringing hot, and so they were getting calls from Perth to... Seven gums and the calls were adamant that despite suggestions otherwise they had witnessed the now infamous sonic boom so actually this stuff was crashing to earth it was breaking the speed of sound and sonic boom was everywhere so they unsurprisingly souvenir hunters rushed out into the um the outback uh just in their four-wheel drives. some even got in the uh the aircraft and it was it was on now it what for uh for baladonia there were actually pieces that landed in the pubs uh, the ground of the pubs there so whilst most of it landed in the the desert uh the Bal- the hotel at baladonia actually had pieces of Skylab land in the um the, the back of the the pub in the, the yard. So that was uh, a, a very close contact with it. Fortunately, there's some conspiracies. <laughs> Always nice to have a conspiracy with these. there one, right? Yeah, <laughs> bloody oath. So, though they sort of uh, said it come to close, there was a, a bloke, John Somerville Smith, who was described in an ABC article as a muckraker for the Turak Times with a graying bouffant. Lazy drawl and a supposed secret that would cast doubt on assertions that the space station's descent upon Australia was but an unfortunate accident. Now, Turak Times—I don't even know. I—I I know it was some sort of um, gossipy, sensationalist type of of rag from down at down at Melbourne, but I don't think that's even a thing anymore.
0: No, never heard of it. But again, I'm not buying tabloid newspapers, so.
1: No. No, well, I suppose we're not the target audience. Um, He reckoned, well, well, not reckoned, he had actually travelled to Kalgoorlie in the days before uh, Skylab's demise. Uh, Some think it was fortuitous timing, but... This guy claimed he had been tipped off by the Americans. He claimed that he was told on the Friday week before in Melbourne that Skylab was going to land in the Laverton area, which is about 240 miles from uh, Kalgoorlie here, he said. So pressed on who had told him, Somerville Smith said, one of the same people who told me Kalgoorlie two years one of the people who told me Kal- Gooley two years and nine months before it was going to happen. They were talking about the American budget and they were saying that uh, they had doubts about how long they could keep the spaceship up in the air. The budget had been cut and they were no doubt thinking of bringing it down to cut expenses ever since. Now, some reckon Somerville Smiths claim of a conspiracy <laughs> had little steed. Uh, however, <laughs> there were declassified diplomatic cables from the U.S. Department of State uh, in dated September 4th in 79. And this lends itself to a bit to the public opinion at time about the involvement, or lack thereof, of American officials in what happened to Skylab. And they were addressing reports that Skylab was deliberately brought down near Pine Gap so that secret military espionage equipment could be recovered from it. And the cables noted any attempt to reply to the obvious untruths in the article would be counterproductive. Uh, Uh, But Pine Gap's a long way from there. It, it is, but I suppose when, you, when you're kept, crashing a huge well, bit of, I
0: mean, it, yeah, if it kept going, it would be a lot closer, though, I guess.
1: Well, yeah, maybe. But, but look, I mean... Either,
0: I it's mean, driving, it doesn't make any sense long, anyway. Yeah, yeah I well, mean, yeah. surely they would have just taken the, you know, secret stuff with them when they left. Skylab the last time they left, you know what I mean? I don't
1: know. Well, that was the problem. They didn't think it was, well, according to their story, they didn't think it was going to come down. They thought, well, look, it's just going to orbit there on its merry way, and it was because they hadn't factored in the activity of the sun, which when you get the increased solar activity, it can increase, um, essentially increase the size of the, the atmosphere. It makes it expand a bit, and that creates drag on satellites. Um, so if there was secret squirrel stuff up there, they may not have uh, expected it to to happen. So, yeah, but so there was in the cables, they said the main section was reported to have been brought down near the Pine Gap maximum security base so that it could be whisked away to the United States. These claims will also be included in a submission to US congressional in- inquiry. Uh, now they tried to tried to quash the story, but the Australian public were pretty skeptical, plus, it was an exciting time. I mean, you were it was, you know, before your time, yeah. um, but I, I remember the, the the lead up to Skylab and just sort of the speculation on what's going to happen, and is it going to crash into Australia and well, it, and it did. <laughs> <laughs> The, spe- the speculation was correct, and then the excitement is uh you saw the news stories coming in and uh because some of the pieces were huge some of the yeah. pieces were you know like uh your water heat your water heater tank at home um great big cylinders oh, it surprises me how much actually didn't burn up and hit the ground um so, so one, one Perth resident had, had said, I think it was a bit foul of the septics, really, to drop it on Australia. Uh, and there's also other people a bit, bit pissed off because NASA uh, claimed ownership of any of the debris which the collectors had hoped to sell.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Claiming it was theirs, <laughs> I mean, I'd be, I wouldn't care. I'd be like, "There's mine now. I found it. Come and oh, come and take it off me." You know, exactly.
1: And <laughs> I, I, seem to recall there might have been a few people doing that. Uh, now, one, one, of the funny little things was the the Shire of Esperance, which who had jurisdiction over much of the area where the wreckage landed. Uh, they fined the U.S. State Department four hundred bucks. For littering, <laughs> so it was arguably a little bit tongue in cheek. One of the rangers had turned up at the the meetings and um, and handed handed over the the ticket, but that four hundred dollar fine was actually paid by a California radio breakfast show in two thousand and nine. So nearly three decades later. Yeah. <laughs> In a belated response to, in a belated response to the the littering fine, so they got a whole of the callers to to call in and um, uh, crowdfund the outstanding penalty. They they then deliver, delivered hand delivered a novelty check to the, the Esperance Shire, and that's been used uh, used for publicity in the the local museum. There's a a picture of it uh, just sort of hanging up in the Hanging up in the museum, yeah, one of those huge, massive checks that you see—big
0: big novelty checks. That's cool.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: it was. It was cool.
1: Um, now, in uh, because the particles had landed in uh Balladonia Pub at the the back, apparently, and I'm going to put apparently because it was reported to have happened. But, um, you know, you don't sort of know with with these things. Uh, apparently, the president, Jimmy Carter, was reportedly so concerned by the development that he personally rang the owners of the Belladonia pub to apologise for, <laughs> for the particles uh. from Skylab <laughs> landing in the back. <laughs> I mean, I would have loved to been there for that phone call, not, not least of all, because you'd be thinking, Yes, this is someone who's trying to prank me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is U.S. President Jimmy Carter. No, it's not. Yeah, you know exactly.
1: (laughs) Uh, And uh, finally, rounding this out, there is uh, there was a rock group family. You remember the well-known rock group family? (laughs) 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 I've just sent you a, a a link, a YouTube link, so. What we'll do is I'll put the I'll put the sound in um for the for the listeners to um to hear what we're we're listening to. Are you able to fire that up at all for your yourself so I can just hear a little bit what you think of it when you hear it? this uh, is, this is right. called the um uh, the group rock group family cemented the town's position in the history books with its 1979 single, Ballad of a Balladonia Night. Now, you don't have to listen much, to much of it to get the gist of it.
0: It feels very... <laughs> <laughs> it feels very uh, 1970s, like disco rock. Oh,
1: doesn't it? <laughs>
0: It's not. It's not like terrible. Like it's music, but you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, not my. Uh, not my cup of tea.
1: No, it's heavily disco. So look, that's how we'll. That's how we'll finish this. Uh, this. This story about what happened with uh, Balladonia and Skylab landing upon it or being deliberately targeted by the the US. You choose which one it. It is. And we'll take this segment out with a little bit of the hit single by Family Ballad of Balladonia Night.
0: Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> Australia's involvement in the US and UK action in Yemen. So the US and Britain have started launching strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. And Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles has confirmed that Australian personnel contributed to the strikes in Yemen. He says that Australian personnel were present in operational headquarters but said he could not elaborate further on the precise nature of their participation. He said that Australia's participation was completely consistent with the national interest and that Australia must stand up for freedom of navigation. He accused the Houthis of the disruption of the rules-based world order. Hang on. What the hell is going on in the Red Sea? I can hear you say. Great question. The Red Sea, of course, links the Middle East and Asia to Europe via the Suez Canal. And at its narrowest is the Bab el mandeb Strait, which is where Yemen is. Nearly 10% of all trade and an estimated of 1 trillion US dollars in goods pass through the strait annually. So it is pretty important. The Houthis represent a Shiite movement that has been fighting against Yemen's Sunni majority government for the last few years. So you've probably heard a little bit about the the Yemeni civil war mm. uh, you know over the last sort of five to ten years. The Iran, Iranian-backed Houthis says that it's been launching attacks with the aim of ending Israel's offensive in Gaza. The group has been targeting ships in the region for some time. This hasn't just all started out of nowhere, but the attacks have definitely escalated since the start of the Israel-Hamas war uh, in October. The rebels, the Houthi rebels, have said that those attacks will continue against ships related to Israel to support Hamas and protest over Israel's war in Gaza. They've been firing anti-ship missiles, drones, and have been attempting to board merchant vessels with the use of small speedboats. And in one case, an ex-Soviet transport helicopter It is reminiscent of a combination of of, uh, really an escalation of what we saw happening in the early 2000s with uh, the Somali pirates. It's Mm. it's reminiscent of that, but, of course, they've sort of upgraded technology-wise and are using, as I said, anti-ship missiles and drones, uh, and in one case, a helicopter. Many shipping companies uh, have started to bypass this route through the Suez Canal, through the Mediterranean, and instead are going to use the much longer and much more expensive route around Africa's Cape of Good Hope. The Yemen's Houthi rebels said that it would continue targeting Israeli-linked ships in the Red Sea, despite overnight airstrikes by the US and Britain. Their spokesman said on Friday that we affirm that there is Absolutely no justification for this aggression against Yemen, as there was no threat to international navigation in the Red and Arabian Seas, and that the targeting was and will continue to affect Israeli ships or those heading to the ports of occupied Palestine. Okay, so what is Australia <laughs> doing? Why are we involved in this? Australia is particularly vulnerable because much of its unrefined oil does come from the Middle East, and a significant portion of its trade with the European Union passes through the Suez Canal, straight past Yemen. But right now, we're not really doing a lot. As far as I'm aware, and as far as publicly available information, we have no ships or aircraft or active personnel in the area. But because of our strategic location, the personnel that Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles was referring to were likely at joint defence facility Pine Gap, which we mentioned just a minute ago. Uh, Spoken to a few buddies uh, through the grapevine, uh, a few current serving defence personnel and some in the open source intelligence sector and basically everyone agrees that Pine Gap is the best guess for for what he was alluding to. Um, But the reality is, why should we care? Why do we need to get involved? The reality is, this is a huge disruption to global trade and the price and availability of stocks of consumer goods and fuel is going to hurt the average Aussie's pocket. We all remember, uh, in March 2021, when the Ever Given... (laughs) uh had an accident and blocked the Suez Canal. Um oh,
1: well and how done much remembering that name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the ever given, yep. Uh it it of course blocked the Suez Canal and just general chaos ensued, I guess. Uh and that really did slow down uh trade of goods across well, the whole world really. Yep. Um And these attacks are actually probably going to have a significantly longer effect purely because they've sort of gone on for a while now. And and what we're seeing happen is... um, So the Houthis say that they're being uh, specific to shipping or shipping companies that are... uh, Related to, to Israel. Uh, but that's not quite the case. It, it, it becomes kind of hard to, to decide exactly how to hurt Israel from their position in that mm. a lot of these ships are owned by international companies. They have an international crew on board. Uh, a lot of them aren't even going to Israel. They're not Israeli flagged ships, things like that. So a lot of what they're doing is basically to cause a massive disruption to global trade. They're also attacking warships in the area. There is an international coalition of warships in the area uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, And they're continuing to strike or attempt to strike warships in the area. Most of their attacks have been unsuccessful because of uh, we're using anti-ship missiles. So we're shooting missiles at at missiles uh, and blowing them out of the sky, which is pretty impressive. Uh, And... Providing uh, sort of uh, assistance to any vessel that comes under attack, just like we were doing uh, in the past with the Somalian terrorist, uh, uh, sorry, Somalian pirate situation. Unfortunately, though, a lot, of the ins- a lot of the shipping companies have decided it's going to be cheaper and less risky for them to go all the way around Africa, which is going to add many days onto their, their journeys. It's also going to increase the price of shipping as a result of that. That's sure. going to use more oil, which is going to increase the cost of oil just because they're using more of it. There's more demand for it. And the- one of the biggest drivers is insurance. So all these shipping companies they have to be insured. And basically, right now, if you're passing through the Red Sea, the cost of insurance is phenomenally high. And these companies just don't want to pay those premiums. So they're going to send them all the way around. So it's going to slow down shipping. It's going to cost shipping more because you've got to remember the more the ship, the longer the ship takes on its journey to get somewhere. The less time that ship can be used for something else, so then the demand for ships and that can carry goods goes up because yep. more of them are at sea, taking longer to get places so and the more fuel it uses exactly, so this is kind of like a snowball effect that uh, like a series of dominoes that 's going to go down, so whereas with the ever given it was it was more of a delayed cost. Uh, this is going to be a much more catastrophic long-term effect. And I don't think we've really seen its impact yet, uh, but it's going to, if this doesn't get nipped in the bud pretty quickly, this is going to, to cause a massive disruptions. Um, yeah, I think the, you're right on that time frame. It is, it is going to be delayed, though. And, and we're already seeing in uh, the was that the west coast of africa uh, is uh, in pl- places like uh, lagos in nigeria a lot of these ships are coming in to refuel and it's causing chaos there just because there are the port facilities to handle the number of ships coming through and things like that so that all over the world right now this is this disruption is causing all sorts of chaos and, and yeah there's going to be a lag between you know going to kmart and buying your australia day thongs or not Or not, uh, yeah. And yeah. because while you go, well, a lot of that stuff comes from China, and you're right, the problem is a lot of the Chinese raw materials comes from elsewhere in the world, and a lot of their fuel comes, most of the Chinese uh, fuel for electricity and factories and stuff like that comes from the Middle East. So there is, you know, one part of the world gets disrupted in its trade, and it does follow on throughout the rest of the world. It's like a series of dominoes that, that fall down. So Yeah, and it's Great. like...
1: Brace for shock. Yeah, well, exactly. Brace for shock is is completely right. I mean, it's it's probably an apt analogy that, in the same way as it takes a long time to turn a big ship around, it does take a long time for the effect of this um, disruption to the supply chain to actually filter down to us in the consumer level. So, whilst we, whilst it's sort of predictable at the moment. It's yet to make its way uh, fully through the chain with with costs and actual delays and it's it's also a volatile situation at the moment so it's difficult for uh, people to get a baseline from which they can calculate increased costs and increased delays. But unless something dramatic happens uh, to change things, the delays and high prices are going to be inevitable uh look australia is essentially involved in any activity that involves american use of uh drones and in a lot of their activities given how important the communication bases we have over here particularly pine gap uh on the last uh week in your two ticks town talk you uh, pointed out Exmouth with the uh, submarine communications. We've got Pine Gap, uh, which you know that's a big secret sequ- secret squirrel base. Uh, that's uh, we know is an essential part of the U.S. military communications network. Uh, most of their, much of their drone network wouldn't be able to work effectively without the participation of Australia. Uh, and in the same way that somebody who drives the getaway car is complicit in the the robbery, any of these military actions uh, committed by the the committed undertaken by the the U.S. military, uh, Australia is complicit in most of those or involved in most of those. It depends. Look, it depends how you actually view it. I mean, complicit's a loaded word, and it's probably more in keeping with my view of this type of thing, which, yeah, I'm really, if you don't have to have anything war or military, I'd prefer that. Got no issue with self-defense, no issue at all with that on a defense force, but uh, when it's used for aggression, I have an issue there. The problem with this one is I get the need to respond against the, the Houthis. Um, I can still see the argument for saying, "Well, why should, why should Australia have an involvement, given where it is?" But aside from what I just stated about how unavoidable it is, I can also see the argument about Australia doing its part of the national community. The problem is that these events they're seldom in isolation, and they nearly always have repercussions and unintended consequences. I, from what I've seen with the um, <clears throat> the bombing campaign and that that's that's going on in in Yemen against the the Houthis, uh, it's not slowing them down yet. It's got all the smell of uh, situation which is going to escalate and i think once it escalates australia is going to start sending uh ships and aircraft and uh personnel over there i'd be astounded unless something happens that the the houthis stop this this action in the next month or two i think australia's involvement is going to increase even further and being over there in a hot action in the Middle East with everything else that's going on in that region uh, gives me the chills a bit. It's not something that I want to see Australia involved in, despite the argument that it's it's part of an international, um, I don't know whether you say moral obligation, but certainly arguably part of an international uh, obligation. Unfortunately, I, <laughs> on principle, uh, if it's not defending Australia directly, I have a lot of difficulty in our defence force being used in what I see could be sometimes argued as an aggressive, um, uh, as in, in an
0: aggressive way. Yeah, this is definitely a hard one because you, it's hard because of where. This is occurring but the 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 ramifications of global shipping really affects everyone. Um it, it particularly affects Europe obviously because that's where through the Suez Canal, that's really where we connect to Europe and the UK with this region. Um and it's it is one of these situations where if you're a if you're a, a major military power in the world, you have a vested interest to keeping the global shipping lanes open. Uh, you know this is why the U.S. has such a massive navy, and prior to that, the largest navy in the world was Great Britain uh, because yeah, they had yep. they they had to 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 keep the shipping lanes open for, to feed their empire. You know. So, yep. uh, and I mean, the UK built the the Suez Canal for that exact reason, to link uh, Europe and India particularly uh, closer together. So, it is one of these situations where I can see the Houthis are uh, seeing an opportunity and are taking it. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're more or less frigging terrorists uh, and... trying to hold the world ransom for geopolitical reasons uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, And that's no good, you know. You can't be doing stuff like this. Uh, And so they're going to respond in kind. Uh, I think the problem is the war in Yemen, the civil war in Yemen has been going on for quite a long time. And I know Saudi Arabia has had... Uh, a big hand in supporting the uh the Tuzis. the yeah the, the the quote unquote official government of Yemen yeah. uh,
1: and so did the u it, it, it always remember that under uh, obama as part of appeasing the saudis for uh the mess that was iraq and was not something that they were keen on they um they certainly actively helped in the beginning of uh Saudi Arabia's uh, attack on um Yemen and then later provided them with uh s- support refueling and guidance and um uh pilot assistance so it was it was it was definitely a US Saudi initially then uh on the face of it predominantly the Saudi attack on Yemen and Hundreds of thousands of civilians died in um, in that action with with Yemi, with the, the the blockades and the the bombing. So it's it's all part of a huge
0: mess over there. It it really is, and this is one of those things that, like you said, you know, it, it's another quagmire in the Middle East that do we really want to get involved And because it really is it's almost part of this proxy war that Saudi Arabia and Iran have been fighting they've, they've essentially been in a cold war for, for decades now and, and Yemen is part of the hot part of that um, and of course as you said the US really got pulled into it to, to appease the Saudis and this is one of those situations where I can so easily see this spiralling into boots on the ground, major That's conflict. That's
1: my problem. You're exactly right, DK.
0: And I feel like the US has seen that as well. That's why they're doing a limited offensive with airstrikes and things like that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if we see uh, special forces units being deployed and or even regular units deployed to uh, the the Yemeni armed forces to train uh, and provide military assistance, but not in combat type type situation. Um, like oh, we're just, doing,
1: you're just all, you're, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing what you're saying. I, I get what you're, you, you're you're saying. Um, but I'm hearing you saying, "Oh, look, we'll just what we we'll do the air strikes, and then we'll just have." um uh, people in there to advise and train and I think how many how fights? many times
0: is yeah oh this yeah. is how it always begins yep, isn't it? Else. Yeah. yeah. And look this has been going on since I think 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, so it's basically been going on for a decade at this point. Uh, and it's no closer to being solved. Uh, uh the Houthis have been getting bombed by Saudi Arabia for a very long time, for this entire time, and clearly it's not uh, it's not eroded their capacity to to launch these sort of attacks. So is the UK and US going to be more effective in it? Possibly, but probably not. Um, I don't know how this is going to pan out. I, I, w- I hope that it gets resolved reasonably quickly, but I do think this might be one of those situations where m- maybe the a diplomatic resolution in the Gaza Strip is going to stop these sorts of attacks um, and maybe it'll bring, it'll force the US and UK to make Israel come to the the bargaining table or or something like that. Um, Either way, look, I do think Australia has an obligation as a world power to protect international shipping and the rules-based world order. I don't want to see Australians getting involved in another Middle Eastern quagmire for nothing. Um, It's not going to be good. I feel like the UK and the US, I hope they feel the same way. Uh, And I just, I want this to be resolved pretty quickly because I don't, I don't want to pay more for fuel. I just for very selfish reasons. I don't my fuel budget's big enough anyway. I don't want any more. Well, that's that's
1: that's a very real problem. I know I know he just sort of made it made that sort of as a, a half joke, but there's a, a truth there. Uh you do have a election coming up in the um in the US this this year and you know albo's if even though you can argue that it's not because of their policies, it's with something that's going on there. Uh, whoever's sitting in the, the seat tends to cop the flak when uh, fuel goes through the the roof. Um, so that's another complication of it. Uh, surprisingly, oil prices at the moment haven't uh, particularly gone up. i, I yeah, a little a lot, bit a lot of the market, about that.
0: I would expect, and you've heard it here first, I would expect fuel prices will go up in the next probably two weeks. I know uh, new oil futures have actually started to move. It, it's, it's actually incredible to me how much the international markets have lagged behind. Because this has been going yeah. on now for a couple of weeks. Um, and those in the know have kind of just been watching this going, this is getting worse and it's not going to get resolved without some major action going on. And I feel like this from the very beginning, there's just been a really big lag with this whole event. And I don't really understand why. Um, I think maybe the markets were kind of expecting it to be resolved reasonably quickly. um, But that hasn't really happened. It's actually continued to get worse. So I don't know what's the space, but I'm hoping I would expect in the next two weeks uh, that the price of of fuel is going to start going up. So yeah, if we'd have you... to have
1: to see that. Look, I suppose we'd have to see how how oil goes. I mean, back in October, oil was at at ninety four. Yep. Um This this is uh, West Texas Intermediate crude, and it's been a, in a steady downtrend um, from ninety four down to the the seventies. Um, s- since then, so it's current. It's currently currently seventy two. Bucks, and at the moment there's sort of a, a bit of congestion. You see, which indicates that might be starting to move up. Don't know. I, I I can understand what you're saying about the the two weeks. I'm not sort of seeing any sign in the price that that might be the 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 case. However, there's also aside from the oil price, there's the um, complications that you were mentioning before about the extra time, the extra fuel and that's actually going to increase the cost of the delivered oil so the the per barrel cost might be at a particular price but the actual delivered cost to the um c- to the consumer is going to rise because of those things so exactly Oh, um, well, look you, you might you might be right actually dcar just i i've Talking through that, I think I've talked myself out of that and gone to your point of view. <laughs>
0: look, I'm, this, this isn't financial advice. But no, 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 do, no. No, yeah, it's not. It's, it's I, I do think it's probably a good idea. Fill up your car now while it's reasonably cheaper uh, because I think it is going to go up. And look, you're right. It doesn't make sense too much because a lot of our fuel comes from Saudi Arabia through the Persian Gulf. Uh, and comes out through the Gulf of Oman into to the Indian Ocean and and sort of makes its way here. So in theory, our fuel supply shouldn't really be too heavily impacted. Uh, no. And of course, in the Timor Sea, we have a refinery and stuff like that. So and we get a lot of it from the US as well. So if anyone's going to be reasonably insulated from the fuel price increase, it would be Australia. Mm-hmm. But you have got to remember that our fuel prices are dictated by the international market rate yep. and that's going to go up because the price of fuel going to Europe is going to jump really high and the price and the demand of fuel in Western Africa from these these ships refueling is going to skyrocket and that's what will affect I think, I'm predicting is going to affect the global oil price and that will flow on through to America, and that pun—that th- yeah. pun's intended to.
1: Yeah, and I think that's—I think that's fair enough. I think that's pun included. I think that's a fair enough speculation. Oh, look, we often we often do make uh, take the opportunity and things like this to just put a, a, a couple of just you know sh- short-term su- su- survivalist preparation tips out there. So one of the things that i would say is now's probably a reasonable time even even if nothing happens you know if things don't go as we say it's still a good idea to have at least 20 or 40 liters of fuel uh for your for your car just in reserve you know keep it in a, a shed or a garage or um even just outside if you you need to you can just grab a you can grab a, a jerry can. Plastic jerry yeah. cans are probably please, about. Under- please to- use
0: fuel safe containers. Don't do what they did in the US. Oh I'm god! Not putting no. Putting it in like plastic bags and things like no, that. No. No.
1: One hundred percent. Go and buy a completely fuel safe container. If you're, it's also not a bad idea to get some, um, some fuel sort yeah, of fuel p- stabilizer. Fuel stabilizer. Yeah. Thank you. That's the, the word. And you can get it for, especially uh, if you're diesel. buying.
0: Yep. Yeah, especially if you're buying petrol, because yep. petrol seems to expire much quicker than diesel. It does.
1: It does expire uh, quicker than diesel. But what what you need to do is have a um, a reminder in your calendar, um, a alarm, something written on the calendar, uh, on the on the fridge, whichever way you want to do it. So long as what works for you. And every month or two, use that container that you've got in storage put it into the tank of your car and then when you go down and fill up, fill up the container again so at least you've got the the fresh one going through. Use the preservative, uh, the stabiliser, in case you run over your time a bit more. But it's a good thing to have that just on hand because if there's any issue with fuel, Twenty liters, forty liters can get you a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of distance from where you are in a modern car. So, yeah, I think that's just another little uh, survival tip that you can that I'm happy to sort of throw into there because I do it. Um, I don't know whether you do, DK. I, I do. I, do, do so it, I was yeah. going to say, if I had to put a bet, I'd be astounded if you didn't have a little bit of a <laughs> reserve.
0: Uh, I, I yeah. always have a jerry can of diesel in the back of the car. And basically when yep. the car gets low, I fill it up. And, and yep. the reason I do that is because quite often when I'm off-road in remote areas, you burn a lot more fuel. And I just kind of like having that safety net of having that extra fuel there. Um, but also what i found it particularly useful for, and the reason I sort of carry it is because so often the fuel price has been quite volatile. And when fuel is cheaper, I fill it up. And sometimes even if I need some more fuel, i have the jerry can, I fill that the car back up with the jerry can. Uh, just a 20 litre can so it doesn't fill it all up. but you know what i mean um until and maybe next week you know that price will come down though i've timed it wrong a few times and it's actually gone up and, and now i'm out of my supply and I, I have to pay the more expensive price but it's it's worked to my benefit more often than not so i would and, recommend and, it it's worth doing
1: and, and even it's it's interesting using that as sort of a a, a um a, a stabilizer for the volatility of fuel price uh regardless of the price having that extra um that extra bit of, of fuel in your possession already now's the time to do it rather than when everybody else wakes up one morning and thinks oh I should be doing it and you go down to your lo- local auto mart or whatever it is and uh you find that there's no jerry cans there and you see there's a queue at the servo. So it's, exactly. it's, it's, an easy, it's an easy thing to give you just a little bit of an edge. won't last you for days, but it gives you a little bit of an edge when it might matter
0: for you and your family. Exactly. Let's move on to this week in Australian history.
1: I come from a la, 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 la. This week in Australian history, we're covering the 6th to the 15th of January. January 6th, Don Bradman scores a record 452 not out in one cricket innings. Now, we're famously not cricket people, but that's a
0: shitload. I think we did this last year and we both had to look it up because we didn't know. But yes, <laughs> apparently it is it is a lot. It's I think it's still a record. Um oh, yeah. Well, well,
1: yeah, maybe maybe it is. Let's stretching back to my memory of
0: yeah, I don't know.
1: Uh, Nineteen thirty-two, Joseph Lyons becomes the tenth prime minister of Australia. January uh, seventh, seventeen ninety-nine, Bass and Flinders complete the circumnavigation of Van Diemen's Land, known nowadays as Tasmania. Nineteen twenty, Edmund Barton, the first prime minister of Australia, dies at age seventy. 1931, Guy Menzies completes the first solo trans-Tasman flight from Sydney to the west coast of New Zealand. In some ways, I sort of thought it might be a little bit earlier than 1931, but I don't pretend to have much in the way of aviation history. Um, Whatever, he did it, good on him. Uh, 1965, the first – 65 – the first hydrofoil ferry begins operation in Sydney. Now, I sort of exclaimed that way because I thought they were later than that because I, I, I grew up in Sydney, um, and we were over, on, over in a suburb not too far away from Manly, and getting the – I, I loved getting the ferry. You, know, you you'd sort of have – that was a fun trip over to uh, Circular Quay and back. But sometimes, because they're expensive, sometimes for a, a treat, you'd get the, the hydrofoil. And being on that, uh, you'd sort of hang out the, the side, waiting to see it lift up on its foils as it got yeah. up to enough speed. And they just seem so futuristic and fun to
0: ride. They still feel, at least to me, they still feel very futuristic because you don't really see very many of them these days. It feels like it was very nineteen sixties like space race kind of technology, like yeah. retro futuristic as we call it now. Because um, you just don't really see them very much anymore. Well, what do you reckon?
1: I mean, you look, you're, you're, sh- ships in the waters, your sort of thing. You got any uh, opinion on why? I you
0: think don't it's. See them? purely just because of the the economics you know the speed is is really the benefit that you get from it but the reality is the cost uh the the sort of the benefit to Using a lot more fuel really isn't there for most applications. Um, there are still, like, hydrofoils around, like, uh, some sailing boats, like racing boats and stuff like that use a type of hydrofoil. Um, and, you know, they're just using wind power. So, yeah. obviously, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. Uh, but, I mean, there still are some around. Um, but I think they're just not as popular anymore just because just of the cost of – Of And and the complexity, like some of them, the hydrofoils do move as well and and things like that. So I think you sort of boil it down to, I think it was really that 1960s kind of like technology optimism. Technology optimism. Yeah, where like technology is going (laughs) to solve all of our problems and we'll just (laughs) throw money and fossil fuels at every problem and it'll fix it. And these days it's, you know, we're more about... Environmental, the economics of it, the efficiency of it, and things like that. I think that's more where we're, where you know.
1: Look, uh, well, all good reasons. I see that. January eighth, eighteen seventy eight. I'll give you a slight quiz on this. January eighth, eighteen seventy eight. What was used for the first time in Australia in Melbourne?
0: Eighteen seventy eight. Yeah. 1878. What was new? Well, there's a lot of new things in the oh, world in the yeah. a, late 1800s. Like it's a broad question. It's a question. Sort of stab in the dark. But I'm trying um, to think. I've got two things that could be. It's either I'm trying to think. I want to say it could be electric street lighting, but I'm trying to remember because I I know that was one, but I I think it was after the 1800s. I want piss. to say yes maybe early 1900s was electric street lighting because um, there's a bit of electrical infrastructure you sort of need for that. Uh, or my other guess would be the telephone.
1: Oh, wow. Yep, nailed it. Wow. Yeah, good.
0: Wow, very I was toss up between press. telephone and radio, but I was like, no, I don't think radio had been, I don't think that was a thing yet. I don't know. When was radio invented?
1: Oh, I thought radio was long before the telephone because using the same electromagnetic principles. I was just yeah, surprised I to like, see 1878. I, that's much earlier than I would have thought.
0: Uh, who who, who did they ring? Not you. Who did they ring? They didn't ring oh, me, God. that's for sure. Actually,
1: that's a good point. Who did they call? Used for the uh, – very good oh, – wow, I'm, I'm impressed.
0: <laughs> uh, huh. But the thing is, is you can set up – you know, you can have two telephones connected – you know, just a metre away from each other with a small power source. And, you know, you can kind yeah. of have it all very, you know, we think of telephone today in a very different way than, uh, uh, say, a uh, uh, demonstration would be. Do you know what I mean?
1: Um, oh, well, good point. So. Yeah, very good point. 1885, John Curtin, John Curtin 14th <laughs> Prime Minister of Australia, is born in Creswick in Victoria don't know why I included that one. I normally nuke those ones. Uh, 1904. <laughs> <laughs> just, just because not I think that, what interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of those I sort of think, okay, so-and-so was born there or so-and-so died. Most of the time it doesn't sort of matter. I mean, Barton, where do I have it? Edward Barton on January 7th? Uh, yeah, because he was the first PM, PM but I'm not sure why I threw Curtin in there, probably just recognised the name. Uh, 1904, death of art collector and philanthropist Alfred Felton and the establishment of the Felton Bequest for the National Gallery of Victoria. January 9th, 1868, the last convicts arrive in Western Australia. 1997, Yachtsman Tony Bullimore is found alive 5 days uh, 5 days after his boat capsized in the southern ocean. He was v- understandably very grateful to be found by the Australian I think it was Australian it, Navy Yeah, him. it
0: was it was cuz I I served with a couple of older sailors that had participated in the rescue. And ah. they were sort of annoyed because they'd missed Mr uh, you know a couple of days off and, and things like that because it was early. What, what did we say? January ninth. January ninth. Yeah, they sort of had to you know get get to see pretty quickly after the new year and all that, and just to to, to save him and and all this. So there was a bit of not a, not some nice words about him. <laughs> I mean, it's their job. I mean, you know, no one's complaining about that, but, you know, it is a bit frustrating. You've just come back to work after the new year and suddenly you have to go save some rich bloke who's uh, capsized, you know. I can see the frustration.
1: Look, it can be your job, but you're still entitled to have a little bit of a whinge. So, Especially
0: because I think at the time they thought he was dead. So, like, they thought, you know, it was amazing he was found alive sort of thing. So,
1: yeah, well, that's why it was significant because it was it was something. It was one of those, um,
0: uh, you
1: know, in the papers. Is he alive? Is he not? You know, there was because I can't remember the full details, but it was something like, uh, yeah, they'd had a radio thing from him, and I think he might have sent out a Mayday or something, and then lost um, contact with him. But yeah, he turned up. Uh, January 10th, 1989, Assistant Australian Federal Police Commissioner Colin Winchester is shot dead in the driveway of his Canberra home. I thought, oh, yeah, normally you hear someone shot dead in their driveway and that, you start to think, I wonder what the involvement is. More detail than uh, we can go into today but there was a whole i looked and i thought oh that starts to be a rabbit hole with um who may or may not have wanted him him dead and some uh, uh Calabrian mafia involvement speculation and uh, oh there was a whole a whole lot of stuff there but um look that up on wikipedia if you want to start the rabbit hole thing and go down to some of the references in there January 11th, 1986, the Gateway Bridge opens in Brisbane.
0: Um, Still a tall have... bridge. Pain. Ah. It's pretty it, – to be fair, though, it is actually – it's very tall. I think it's like 80 metres tall or something like that. Um, It, it yeah. had to be really yeah. tall because cruise ships go underneath it. So, ah, um, right. So it is really tall. Um, It's pretty cool to go over – uh, because you sort of get a really nice view of the city. Not, that, but if you were going into the city from either south or north, you wouldn't really go over the Great Bay Gateway Bridge. But um, it is, it is a little bit cool for that reason. But yeah, uh, my whinge is that it's still a toll bridge even yeah. after all these years. So, yeah,
1: well, I guess <laughs> can't expect the government to give up
0: their oh, cash cows, can you? Yeah, bloody six bucks a car each way. It's you know it six bucks. Up. Yeah. Wow, I think it's six dollars fifty or something like that. Yeah, oh, they bloody they sting they, you. Yeah, they sting you. First,
1: nineteen ninety, convicted drug trafficker Warren Fellows receives a royal pardon and is released from jail in Thailand. Two thousand and five, nine people are killed in bushfires in South Australia, making them the worst fires seen in Australia since Ash Wednesday fires. January 12th, 1943, Australian and American forces begin attack begin an attack on S- Sen- ananda during the Battle of Bunagona. God, I butchered both of them. Yeah. Begin an attack in, on in,
0: in S- New Senananda.
1: Yeah. Oh, right. In New yeah. Guinea. In Ananda in the Battle of Bunagona. Okay. All yeah. right. That's a bit more...
0: That's this is better. the, this, that, that happened after the Kokoda Trail campaign. Ah. So this is like after that, so, yeah.
1: Right. Oh, I was looking at, looking at those words, and for so, oh, I didn't know about that, and I was just looking for those words, and I thought they looked South American for some reason, so. But as soon as you said New Guinea, I think, oh, okay, pronunciation looked a bit better. 2005, Australia's first 2020 cricket game was played at the Wacker. That's over in Perth, ground between the Western Warriors and the Victorian Bush Rangers to a sellout crowd of twenty thousand seven hundred. Wow. Yeah. Um <laughs> and there our interest ends. Uh, January thirty. <laughs> 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 January 13th 1851 Charles Augustus Fitzroy commissioned as governor general of all her majesty's australian possessions uh, and that was that position was a forerunner to the governor general of australia 1935 35, 1939 victoria experiences the black friday bushfires and uh, in that same year, same date, Melbourne records its hottest temperature of 45.6 degrees Celsius.
0: I feel fire. like those two things might have been linked. Oh, I <laughs> have. Yeah. I'm not a historian, but.
1: <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I'm not an historian, but. <laughs> uh, January 14th, 1803, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, or oh, it's left, we call it, we use Lieutenant, don't we here?
0: Yeah, for the, for the wow. army. Well,
1: slept in American. Uh, 1803, Lieutenant Colonel David Collins commissioned in England is, f- to, to com- is commissioned in England to found a new settlement on Bass Strait, preferably at Port Phillip. 1815, the road over the Blue Mountains is completed to the Macquarie River. 1962, bushfires ravage Lara and the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria, causing 14 deaths. Uh, 2002, controversial MP Pauline Hanson resigns as leader of the One Nation Party.
0: But that's, and we never heard from her again.
1: No, no, fell off the map entirely after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, for our international viewers, that's sarcasm. 2002.
0: <laughs> she currently is the leader of the <laughs> One Nation Party and exactly. is a sitting, sitting senator in the Australian Senate. Yep.
1: you can't keep her down. No. Uh, 2002, on January the 14th, CASA, uh, our Aviation Safety Authority, I think it stands for, grounds 5,000 light aircraft that had used contaminated uh, mobile fuel. Uh And we come to the end, January 15th, with 1842, Mary MacKillop, the only Australian to be canonised, is born in Fitzroy, Victoria. And canonised means made a saint by the the Catholic Church. Um, And finally, 1944, on January 15th, the Australian 9th Division capture the town of... uh, CO destroying the Japanese twentieth division in the protracted Huon Peninsula campaign. And that rounds out this week in Australian history. How are you feeling,
0: DK? Thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Might be time for a beer. <laughs> Of course, this is our segment, the 4X Bottle Top Question, which is where we crack a beer, a cold beer, a 4X beer, uh, and we read the trivia question under the cap, except this week uh, I've actually finished my beer already and the questions didn't come from the bottle cap because I had a can, so... Anyway, it has become tradition that we do two questions. So I have two questions. One of these is pretty, pretty easy. I, th- I would be very surprised if you didn't get it. The other one's a little, bit, a little bit tricky. We'll see. So we'll start with the tricky one first. Question is, what is the name? What name is commonly given to the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world? Uh, Australian native
1: is it 46023? No, <laughs> just from, from your pathetic quiz, it's seen. So, oh. for
0: our listeners, this is a joke, but this is an in joke. So, I was looking for some trivia questions. Uh, because I didn't have a a steady supply of 4X (laughs) bottle tops. Uh, And so I went to, I should name and shame it, but I honestly I can't remember the name of the website, but it was a very pathetic uh, quiz and it had all the wrong answers and listed for... What was it? The, Australia
1: Day. What is when Australia is Day?
0: Australia Day? The answers were it was multi-choice. There was four answers. <laughs> when is
1: Australia Day? Yeah, for like four and six the, three.
0: Four, six, zero 46023 was the correct answer. Uh, apparently, I had been told by an IT friend of mine that that is something to do with they probably pulled it through Excel and it's come out as a string oh. rather than as the dates Uh, But he did say, even in that case, 46023 would have been wrong. Uh, (laughs) It was the wrong date. So (laughs) I didn't use that one, so it's (laughs) not that. So just to repeat the question, what is the name? Yeah, I was going to say after that smart (laughs) ass can I have it again, please? (laughs) What name is the commonly given to the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world? In the world? In the world, it's an Australian native animal. The
1: largest carnivorous. Massupial. Oh, the largest. The thylacine.
0: Yes. Right, gosh. Which is also called the? Tasmanian tiger. But they're extinct, so it can't be. What is the name commonly given to the largest carnivorous marsupial in the oh. world that's still alive? <laughs> oh, that's still
1: alive. Okay. I, you you would be the, right, but. The Tassie Devil.
0: The Tassie Devil. Good job. Right. But yes. Right. It would have been the Tasmanian Tiger had they still been arrived. Now, question number two should be easy for you. The Melbourne oh, Cup, right. the horse race, the very famous internationally. The race that stops a nation is run on what racecourse? Oh. This is meant to be the easy one. I know,
1: I know it, and I should know this because. God, I was a member of a bloody pistol club near the. Oh, I was a member of the uh, Flemington.
0: Flemington. Oh, there it. <laughs>
1: that's what the pistol club was called, Flemington Pistol <laughs> Club. Flemington Pistol yeah. Club. Yeah. Yeah. Just there as I go. said that, I was a member of the
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the Flemington Racecourse, the race that stops the nation, the Melbourne Cup horse race in November. The something can't remember. Early November
1: first. First or second Tuesday in November.
0: That's one, it. One of those. I, yeah, it moves. I think it moves, and it? it's one of those floating dates. I'm not a big horse racer, uh, but I do enjoy going to the pub for the day and drinking with friends. Hmm. And on that, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her.
1: Thanks, J.K.
0: See ya. See ya.